Father, help us to know you more. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand your purposes, your power. Help us to understand your desire for us. You desire that we would be like our Savior. So help us to understand our Savior more. His holiness, His humility, His desire for the lost, His obedience to you, His Father. Lord, there's so much that that we take for granted about who you are. There is uh, so much that we, are, uh, that we are ignorant about who you are. Because you are eternal. And though we could spend all of our days studying your word that, that reveals you and meditating on who you are, we will not fully grasp the greatness of our God. And we thank you for that. If we could, in our created minds, understand you fully, then you, our creator, would not be as great as you are. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. You've given us your word You've revealed yourself through, uh, through nature in, in the created universe, the creation that we observe. Thank you that you have not only revealed yourself, but you have revealed your desire for us, that we would recognize our sin and that we would uh, turn to you through Jesus Christ, that we would respond in faith, believing that it is in Jesus' life death, burial, and resurrection, that we are saved. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by our family or by our church. We are saved by Jesus, by believing in him. Lord, help us to have that faith. I pray that that saving faith would grow into a faith that lives for you. We call it faith because it is Difficult. It's not easy. It's not natural. It takes uh, a confidence in you that we don't observe just by looking at our circumstances or certainly not looking within ourselves. But to live a holy life is to live a life of faith. Help us to do that. So, Father, as we open your word now, as we observe the Lord's table, Remind us afresh of your purposes, that your purpose is to save. Father, for someone who's here today who is not yet your child, redeem them today. Help them to turn from their sin and respond in faith to you. Father, for those who are your children, Grow us closer to you this morning that our attitudes and actions would, would reflect your good work in our lives. We thank you for who you are and for what you will do in and through us today. In Jesus' name, amen.
invite you to join me in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, our study in the book of Habakkuk is winding down. Chapter 1 began with the prophet rightly longing for justice and righteousness among God's people. He looked around at the, the nation of Judah, God's people that he was living among, and he recognized that there was a lot of sin. And so he longed for that change, that they would live rightly and justly. But what we have learned throughout this brief book is that sometimes our godly longings, even though these are things that God wants as well, our godly longings go unfulfilled in our lifetime. That's the the conclusion that Habakkuk is coming to, that he's not going to see the final result. When the first man, Adam, sinned in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, all hope for a utopian, idealist society vanished. There is no hope for that, but what do we pursue all the time? Don't we pursue those things that are utopian and ideal? Because of sin, because of the curse of sin, every aspect of life is harmed. Because of sin, Nature works against us. We have weeds, thorns, rust. We have a reduced production. The effort that we can normally put into things just doesn't work. Sin did not cause work. God created work and it was good. But sin has corrupted work, made it hard The curse of sin impacts how we think, how we process information. But when we think of the curse of sin, we most often think of the big curse, don't we? The one that God promised to Adam and Eve that if you eat of this particular fruit in this garden, you shall what? You shall surely die God's design of man and woman was that we would live perpetually. But sin ruined that. And so now we have a life expectancy. In the United States, our life expectancy is just shy of 80 years. Adam lived to be 930. Think of all the things that you could do if you knew that you were going to live with health for nine centuries. There's an author named Peggy Rowe who became a uh, New York Times best-selling author and she wrote her first book after the age of 80. There are lots of things that I would love to do, lots of skills that I would love to hone myself, but I simply don't have the time. And it's not that I don't have the time in the week, I don't have the time in my life to do some of the things that I would love to learn how to do. But if you had forever to do it, man, you could be great at any number of things. See, our lives are short. Habakkuk's life was short. He had a longing for righteous injustice that he was not going to see in his lifetime. 
God is not so restrained. Praise the Lord for that. He is eternal. He has no limits. It makes no difference to God how long something takes. So when he promises to Habakkuk that he is going to change things, even though it takes longer than Habakkuk's lifetime for that to come to fruition, God is not restrained. God tells him these wonderful things that are going to happen, that he is doing something, that he's doing something to bring about the the righteousness and justice that he longs for. Habakkuk cried out to God because of the sin that's going on around him. He says, Lord, please fix this. But God's answer was, well, I'm going to by raising up Babylon and taking the nation of Judah into exile for 70 years so that the land could have its Sabbaths. Today we're going to see a bit more of God's long-term goal. And being our eternal God, he can have much longer-term goals than what we can do. I think you'll see that we can adopt this same long-term goal. Our big idea this morning is God is relentless in his pursuit to save. And he is, isn't he? It was foreshadowed all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had sinned, and God told them that the seed of woman would bruise the serpent's head. Alluding, then, whether they understood, how much of that they understood at the time, I don't know. But we from the New Testament have a perspective that we understand that God, back in Genesis chapter 3, was predicting that Jesus would come to earth and that he would conquer sin, Satan specifically, through the cross. All throughout time, God has been relentless pursuing salvation. And we're going to see it in our text today as well. So follow along with me if you would. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let's pray. Father, bless your word. Bless us as we seek to understand and apply it, that your will may be done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we saw God's power through the natural world. Today, the prophet moves us from the natural world to the inhabitants of the world. We see, first of all, in verse 12, that God is the great judge. If we're going to understand who God is, one of the aspects of God that we need to know is that God is the great judge. It says, you marched through the earth in fury and threshed the nations in anger. Threshing. 
threshing the nations. That's talking about people, not the land anymore, as we, as we did in the previous uh, few verses. Threshing, of course, is an agricultural term. It's the process of separating the grains from the stalks. Now, we have amazing machines that do that today. They do it very efficiently, very effectively. Um, talk to our farmers. Uh, they're very expensive machines, and for a reason, because they do a lot all at once. It was not so in Habakkuk's day. A harvest in Habakkuk's day took lots and lots of people. Lots of laborers would go out into the field. They would cut the stalks. They would bundle them together and then cart them off to the threshing floor. The threshing floor would be a stone floor, uh, usually high up on a hill so that the wind would come and whatever chaff was there would blow away. And at the threshing floor, the oxen would move around in a circular pit that was filled with, with whatever grain it was, barley, whatever. And it would stomp on the, the, the stalks of grain there to separate the ears uh, of grain from the stalk. And so the imagery that Habakkuk is communicating to us is the unyielding trampling of the nations by God, just as a little piece of grain is powerless against a 2,000-pound ox, so people are powerless against God. It's no wonder the Bible often uses threshing as a symbol of judgment. I mean, if grain could feel, how much would it hurt to have the oxen separating it from the rest of the plant. When God threshes the nations, it will be painful. So God is pictured here in verse 12 as going through the earth in fury and threshing in anger. Why is God so mad? Habakkuk saw God, the master farmer, threshing the nations, throwing them away as useless chaff. Why? Well, in order to preserve his chosen people. God is relentless in his pursuit to save his people by rightly judging the guilty. God, as our righteous judge, never gets it wrong. And praise the Lord for that. I mean, name, name one judicial system in the world that never makes a mistake. I mean, even in our country, it's estimated that there are 2 to 10% of people who are currently incarcerated that they are imprisoned wrongfully. Now, Take even the most conservative end of that range, 2%, and even divide that in half. 1% of all the people in jail are there wrong. That's a lot of people. How often does God get it wrong? Never. God never gets his judgment wrong. So when he's out threshing the nations, he's talking about threshing the, the unsaved and separating them from the saved, from the redeemed. The emphasis of our passage, however, is not the fury or the rage or the wrath or the anger of God in his judgment or even the impact 
of his judgment. The emphasis in our passage is the purpose of his judgment, and we see that in verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Why is God threshing the nations? So that his people would be saved. God is the great judge in verse 12, but he's the great rescuer in verse 13. He is relentless in his pursuit to save, and he has to be. He must be, because if he were not, there would be no salvation. The Chaldeans, that Babylonian empire described in the book of Habakkuk as this relentless and arrogant and terrifying army, was indeed all those things to the nation of Israel because Israel could not defend against them at all. If God didn't save them from Babylon after their 70 years of captivity, there would be no saving them. The same is true for you and me. If God doesn't do the work of salvation in our lives, we cannot be saved. Judah could not defend against the coming empire of Babylon and then once taken, they could not escape. Only God could rescue them. The salvation of God's people today is that of being saved from our sin, not from some nation. Being saved from our sin, being saved from eternal destruction, at the same time being saved to righteousness and being saved to eternal life. If God were not relentless in his pursuit to save, none of us could be saved. Why? Because Romans 3 verse 10 is very, very clear. There is none righteous, not even one. None of us in our own state, none of us on, our, on the basis of our own righteousness have any righteousness actually in front of God. Because all of our righteousness falls short. That's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is relentless in his pursuit to save by rightly rescuing the redeemed. Now how can that be? How can God actually save any of us? How can God look at those of us who are sinful and we are all sinful and say, hmm, I'm going to save you. It is true that no one of their own capacity obtains or retains righteousness. So how can a holy God righteously rescue anyone? Well, for us to be redeemed, we must have a righteousness that is not our own. It has to be better than our own. In the New Testament, a couple of very clear passages come to mind. And I've read these for you on multiple occasions, and I don't apologize for reading them to you again because they are that important. Paul in Philippians chapter three, verse nine says, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. And now Paul writes extremely long paragraphs, and so there's a reason why I didn't write, read the entire paragraph to you. But in Philippians chapter 3, he's talking about how salvation works. 
We must be made perfect, and we can't do that on our own. We can't do that by obeying God's law. We have to have righteousness from Jesus that we receive through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I think I quoted this one just two weeks ago. Again, I don't apologize. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. God took Jesus, the one who never, ever sinned, placed all of our guilt, all of our sin on him so that we could have Jesus' righteousness credited to us. The big word is imputation. It's a good theological term. It's what separates us from, other denom- from certain other denominations of churches. Because there are other churches who would say that if you, as long as you uh, work hard and you apologize for the sins that you do and you pursue righteousness in and of your own self, then you'll be, you'll be good enough. But the Word of God tells us quite clearly that we must have Jesus' righteousness placed on us in order to be good enough. We can't muster that up. On our own. But these concepts here of having this foreign righteousness, of having this external righteousness applied to us, is not only found in the New Testament, it's found in the Old Testament as well. Let me take your attention to Jeremiah chapter 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, the prophet writes, inspired by God Look, the days are coming. The Lord declares, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. By the way, aren't these the two things that Habakkuk is longing for? Justice and righteousness. Talking about, uh, Jeremiah is talking about the Messiah, Jesus, would come and rule and reign and, and do so in righteousness and justice. Verse 6 of Jeremiah 23 In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. One of the many names of God found right here. The Lord, our righteousness. We know him as such because we don't have righteousness on our own. Jeremiah was looking way beyond the 70-year exile. He was looking beyond the Jewish people's release from Babylon and, and the ability to come back to the land. Jeremiah was actually looking past even today. He was looking to a yet-to-be-established kingdom where Jesus reigns and rules in person on this earth, and he will do so fulfilling the longings that Habakkuk expressed to us in chapter 1 that we would live righteously and justly. God is the great judge, the great rescuer. Verse 13 continues into verse 14 and shows us God, the great avenger. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. Again, that word selah is a pause, a uh, stop and, and think over what we just read. Well, what we just read is pretty gory and violent. It actually gets more gory and violent as you look into verse 14, doesn't it? 
The visuals may get a little PG-13 here, but the purpose is not to be gory, but to give confidence to God's people that their enemy will be utterly brought down. It says in verse 13 that you crushed the head of the house of the wicked. That's talking about the leaders of Babylon will be powerless. They will be crushed. They will be destroyed. But not only will the leaders of Babylon be destroyed, it says that they will be exposed says the last part of verse 13, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Not only will the king of Chaldea be killed, his memory will be disparaged and shamed. Having been uncovered, he's more than just uncovered, he's being shamefully exposed. And then verse 14, we see the warriors are destroyed by their own arrows. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Who's me? Well, that's Habakkuk speaking. Uh, that's, uh, the me is referring to my land, my nation. So these warriors came uh, like a whirlwind, so violently, quickly, just uh, scattering the nation and taking them into captivity. And not only did they do this horrible deed to the nation of Judah, or will in the prophecy, uh, they did so uh, without any remorse. It says, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. These warriors being destroyed by their own arrows means whatever weapons or abilities are possessed by those who use them to oppose God's work will have those things used against them, turned on themselves, destroying themselves. You know, only God can, can coordinate this kind of undoing. God is relentless in his pursuit to save by claiming vengeance for his people. The very means that Babylon used to destroy Judah and the many other nations that they took. I mean, Babylon didn't just center on, on the nation of Judah. Uh, those same means are going to be used against Babylon. We know them as the Persian Empire that comes in later. Uh, but God uses the same methods, the same cold-blooded vengeance, destruction, uh, the same uh, ruthlessness that Babylon used on others will be used against them prophesied as such here in verse 14. Verse 15, we see God, the great victor. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This is a picture of victory. The great victor, God, rescuing his people. The Lord is a warrior. Do we think of him that way? I mean, maybe when we read verses like this, we do, but in general, do we? That God fights for his people? The imagery of verse 15 would very quickly remind the original readers of the book of Exodus as God leads the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 15 is a... a a chapter about God rescuing his people. Exodus 15, verse 3, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Verse 11, 
Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? Verse 13, with your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. In verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I didn't take time to read the whole chapter to you. You can read that some other time, uh, Exodus chapter 15. But God is uh, revealed as the great victor. And that's who Habakkuk is praising in this theophany here in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. The rest of chapter 3 serves as a fitting and powerful response of worship on the part of the prophet. When we think of worship, we often think of praise songs, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and those are all good concepts to have in our worship. But worship isn't always exciting and happy. Uh, the worship we see from Habakkuk, as we'll look at next week, Lord willing, uh, throughout the rest of chapter 3, is, um, is not that hallelujah, praise the Lord kind of worship. So we've arrived at chapter 3, verse 15. The prophet has his complete answer from God. The start of Habakkuk's book was the prophet crying out with a question to God. Why is there all this injustice and unrighteousness? Why is the law of God powerless to stop the evil around me? And God's answer came in three basic themes throughout the book. The first part of God's answer is just because you don't see God working does not mean he is standing idly by. In fact, I think Habakkuk was quivering in his sandals when God said, oh, but I am doing something. And you wouldn't believe me if, if you were told. God made it clear that he was the one raising up the Babylonians to purify the stain of Israel's sin. Habakkuk needed to be reminded of God's sovereignty, that God is all-knowing and all-powerful. He's taking care of things even when we don't see it. That God will always do what is best, even when what is best hurts. The second part of God's answer was to clarify just how horrible this invading enemy was going to be. That was part of chapter 1 and most of chapter 2. The enemy was powerful, swift, merciless, brutal, unstoppable. God's description of the invaders was terrifying. But the final part of God's answer, the part that we've been looking at most recently, has nothing to do with the evil state of God's people and has nothing to do with the violence of Babylon. The culmination of God's answer to Habakkuk has everything to do with God himself. The person and the work of God. God is the one who saved Israel in the past. There are several allusions to the Exodus in chapter 3. God is the very embodiment of power. If you're in chapter 3, look at verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays of light flashed from his hands. He is power. God is the creator and author of life. 
He's the one who is powerful to change the earth as he desires, scattering mountains, even terrifying the ancient mountains. God's power extends beyond even this world, controlling the sun and moon, as we looked at. Indeed, the answer to Habakkuk's trouble has always been God himself. Surely the prophet of God understood that, and that's why he sought his answer from God to begin with. God is relentless in his pursuit to save, being the majestic, undefeated defender of his people. God alone is the resolution that is needed in Judea. God alone is the solution to our need as well. God is relentless in his pursuit to save. Therefore, we can wait patiently for him to complete his work. Might we be waiting for a very long time? Yes, we might. Might the resolution come after we die? We only experience when we see our Savior face to face. Yes, that is very possible. But it's okay, isn't it? Because of who God is, because he's the one who keeps his promises, because he's all-powerful, because he is the judge, he is our rescuer, he is the avenger, and he is always the victor, we can trust him. As God's people, we should be able to relate to Habakkuk. We too should be angered at the seemingly unchecked sinfulness we find ourselves surrounded by. We too should be longing for God to make all things new, to make everything right. And we too, like Habakkuk, should be in awe of God's revealed plan for the end of the age. Read the prophetic passages of Scripture as God reveals glimpses of what will happen next on the earth, and it's violent, isn't it? It actually makes the violence of the Babylonians look kind of calm. That's okay. Because God is pursuing the salvation of his people. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to be in awe of who you are. To be so struck with your holiness that we see the unholiness that remains in our lives and we are crushed by that fact. And so we're motivated to pursue godliness. Father, help us to trust you for our salvation, that we would not pursue works in order to be saved, but that we would pursue works because you have already paid for that salvation. And we trust Jesus for our eternal life. Father, help us to trust you in our circumstances. 
whatever struggles we may be going through or are about to be going through, whatever pains we may be experiencing, whatever loss we may be feeling, Lord, help us to trust you through our circumstances. Because you are the great God who pursues our salvation to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from our circumstances. Lord, we're quite aware that our rescue from our circumstances may not come until Jesus returns or until we pass from this life. But you've revealed plenty in your word as to what the next life looks like for those of us who have put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. You've promised to wipe every tear from our eyes. I take that to mean, Lord, that you'll remove everything that pains us and saddens us and discourages us. Because when we are with our Savior face to face, when we are in his presence, all the pains of this life will fade. And we will live in the joy of our salvation. Lord, help us to live in the joy of our salvation in the here and now. Focusing not on what's wrong around us, but focusing on you. Lord, help us to do that because we are so easily distracted and discouraged by the sinfulness of this world, by the pains of this world. Lord, help us to turn to you. We know that you are the the great comforter, you are the great uh, and powerful and awesome God who gives us hope. Lord, we pray that you would uh, provide us with that confidence in you as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen.